Hey everybody. It's good to be back. I was on vacation, i.e. sick leave, for two weeks. Um, but I missed you guys. Uh, we are in Acts 26. So would you take your Bible and turn there with me? Acts 26. This is our second to last sermon in the book of Acts. All right, Acts 26. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it's before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you're familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They've known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I've lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I'm accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them, often in all the synagogues, and tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you've seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer 
And that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this hasn't been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Uh, Father, we uh, have your book open before us, and we want to hear from you. We need to hear from you. And so uh, we trust that your word will not return void, that it will accomplish what you send it out to do. And so uh, we soften our hearts. Uh, We give you our ear this morning. Amen. So there has been um, a shift in Acts. I don't know if you um, noticed it, but in Acts 21, after Paul is arrested in Jerusalem, since then, he has been on trial for his faith in Jesus. Last week, Mark um, Olson uh, preached about how he was defending, Paul was defending his faith before Felix, a Roman governor. And we read that between chapter 24 and now, Felix leaves Paul in prison in Caesarea for over two years. And at that point, at the end of two years, the Jews, they retry their case against Paul with Felix's successor, Festus. And Festus um, isn't able to find any credible charge against Paul, at least not anything that's worth um, condemning him to death. And so Paul, he appeals to Caesar. He says, I want to go to the emperor. But before Festus sends him away, he doesn't want to send him away without a credible charge to go along with him. And before he's sent away to Rome, King Agrippa um, II, he's the great-grandson of Herod the Great that we read about um, in in the Gospels. He arrives in Caesarea, which gives Festus a chance to seek his counsel. Um, he, he asks Agrippa, Agrippa, I need your help because I'm sending Paul away and I need your help thinking about um, what to say to the emperor when I do. And this account, it's the third of three times that Luke mentions, talks about Paul's story of coming to faith in Jesus. It's the third time. The first one is in Acts chapter 9 when it actually happens. The second one is in Acts chapter 22. And this is the third one right here. So why why would he do that? Why would Luke repeat this story three times? The same story, albeit in, in different ways with different emphases, but three times. It's because... Our story of coming to believe in Jesus, it's, it's important. 
It's worth repeating. It's deeply personal because we're not just talking about this, this process of how I assented intellectually to these new doctrines or, or beliefs. No, we're talking about the process of coming into a relationship, a personal, intimate relationship with the creator of the universe. The story about how the power of the Father's forgiveness of his never-ending love that pursues us to no end captivated us and changed us once and for all and, and over a lifetime. So our stories are worth repeating, and it's why Jesus saves Paul in the first place. Remember, we just read it on Damascus Road. He tells Paul, I've appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. He's saying, I've saved you, Paul, to tell your story to others about me. Friends, when you're rescued into a relationship with the living God, you are given a story to tell, a story doered. The troubling thing is that for many of us, we don't know how to tell our story. Some of us, we don't believe that we have a story to tell, at least not a good one. Um, you know, I'm not like those hardcore Christians. You know, I, I wasn't a drug addict. Um, I grew up going to church. There's never been a day where I, I don't remember not believing in Jesus. Well, friends, you're in good company because Paul the apostle grew up going to church too. Uh, some of us focus too much on ourselves and our troubles. And our stories leave people wondering if our Savior has actually saved us. Some of us focus too much on the positive, and it seems like some sort of fairy tale disconnected from life on the ground here in Lincoln. Uh, it leaves our audience wondering if we actually need a savior or if we just need some like good counseling and a, and a self-help book. And so we, many of us, don't know how to tell our story. So that, that's the question we're going to ask together is how do you tell your story? Three points today. I was lost. I was rescued. What do you think? So first, I was lost. Before, though, we even get into the, the what of our story sharing, Paul shows us in these first few verses how we ought to share. First, we need permission to speak. So look at verse 1. Agrippa says to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And then Paul stretches out his hand and makes his defense. So by this time, Agrippa has heard all about Paul. Because Festus's account of the Jews' accusations of Paul, he's told them to Agrippa. And based on that account, Agrippa, he, he's, Paul's won his respect. He wants to offer him a listening ear. And so first, we need our audience's permission to share our story. Second, look at how Paul addresses the king. Look at verses 2 through 3. I consider myself fortunate that it's before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you're familiar with all the customs and controversies of the, of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. 
What's the, the nature of, the, of, his, of his address to the king? And, you know, granted, he's addressing a king, but throughout the New Testament, we're told that when we share about Jesus, when we tell our story, we're to do it with gentleness and respect, regardless of who they are. So now that we have some of the how, what do we say first when we're invited to share our story? First, we talk about how we were lost. In verses 4 through 8, he, Paul, he recounts his history as a Pharisee, and then he shares his belief that Jesus, he's just the fulfillment of, of the Old Testament promise that he and the rest of the Jewish people hope in. Essentially, he's saying that this Christian movement that I stand for isn't new. It isn't novel. It has ancient roots and is, in fact, the end of what the Old Testament scriptures, what Paul calls the prophets and Moses, point to. And Paul just exposes the irony that if that's the case, the Jews are putting them on trial for worshiping the exact same God that they do. But he also humbly acknowledges that he hasn't always thought this way. In fact, like his Jewish accusers, he was convinced, uh, look at verse 9, that Jesus and his band of followers were just trouble, that they were in opposition to God and his purposes. And so in the name of God, he tries his hardest to stamp out this budding Christian movement. He locked them up. He approves of their death, of their, of their murder. He tries to make them publicly deny their, their love for Jesus. And the way he describes his zeal in doing all of this is in verse 11. Look at this word, or this phrase, raging fury. Raging fury. This word here, it means to not only be mad, it's not just like road rage that we're talking about here. What this word means is, is that Paul's saying, I was going crazy. I was going mad at how full of rage I was at those Christians. I was out of my mind. I wasn't living in reality because of those Christians. Paul was lost. He was living against the grain of reality, opposing not simply followers of Jesus, but Jesus himself. And we see this in verse 14. After Jesus stops Paul in his tracks on the Damascus road, he says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not my followers, but me. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Man, what a fascinating image. A goad was this like pointy stick that that shepherds would use to prod and direct stubborn animals who had wandered off in a direction that they weren't supposed to go. And in the moment, it sure didn't feel good. But the shepherd in his kindness used it because he knew what was best for their animal, for their sheep or their oxen that had wandered off. And so God is driving Paul in a certain direction. Paul is resisting. And the pressure and the frustration, the madness 
that's driving him out of his mind is like a goad in the hand of God himself. So in sharing his story, Paul starts with, I was lost. I was kicking against the goads, opposing not only God's people, but Jesus himself and his purposes. And at the time, I was convinced I was doing the right thing. You know, before I was a Christian, and even today, it's something that I struggle with, just to be honest with you. I I lived for the attention and praise of other people. Whether it was the applause of a band director or the affection of a girlfriend, I worked hard. I worked hard to keep folks like that around. I performed. I swooned. I manipulated. But it never worked. The, the awards were never enough. The girlfriends always lost interest. Don't worry, I've gotten a lot of counseling because of that. Um, and time and time again, man, I would just jump right back in and I would, I would double down. I would say, no, don't give up. Perform, hustle, flirt, entrance. But by the time uh, that I, I entered college, man, I was exhausted. All of the pursuit of pleasure had driven me to this, this very lonely, very empty, depressed place where I just felt unnoticed. I felt forgotten. So do you hear it there? I was trying to use life in a way that God never intended. I was kicking against the goads, trying to find an unending love in things that, that were, were not God. And in his kindness, Jesus drove me to the end of myself. So what's your story? How did, how did you or how are you still kicking against those goads, making an attempt at life apart from, uh, apart from God? What drove you to him? Paul was out of his mind. What about you? Uh, was it the shame, the rage, the, the creeping anxiety, the, the depression? How is God trying to get your attention right now? Through the frustrations, the pressures of life, how is he trying to get your attention right now? So what do we say when we first are invited to share our story? Man, I was lost. I was lost. Then say, I was rescued. I was rescued. So friends, what's the nature of this rescue? First, it's true. It's true. The ironic thing, though, is that while Paul is speaking, giving his defense, Festus interrupts him. In verse 24, after he mentions the resurrection, and remember he says, Paul, you are crazy. You are out of your mind. Your great learning has driven you mad. And it's the, here's a cool little Greek thing, nerd thing. It's the same word. It's the same root of the word that Paul uses to describe himself earlier when he, when he was pursuing the Christians in a raging fury. So he's saying, no, Festus, I was out of my mind. But I've never thought more clearly now that I know Jesus. So how do we share that our rescue is true? First, we say, I know him. 
I know him. I know the Savior. I know Jesus. It's this personal relational reality. Paul, he saw Jesus in a vision. He, he experienced him. Remember just the brightness of the light that shone around him at noon when the sun was brightest. He remembers that. He remembers the smell of the dirt as he fell on his face in awe. He remembers. He knows Jesus. He remembers just, just the, the timber of Jesus' voice as he spoke to him in his own language. He remembers. So, What do you remember about meeting Jesus? What do you remember? When did he become real to you? Our rescue is true because we know him. We we hear his voice when we sit with the Psalms on a quiet morning and pray to him. Our rescue is true because we know him. And our rescue is true because others have seen him. Others have seen him. Friends, our faith is is historical. Jesus' body rose from the dead. He was dead, but he rose up from the grave. And the New Testament says that literally hundreds of people saw the risen Jesus. You can't say that kind of thing. You can't say that kind of thing and, and not get in trouble if it's not widely attested to. And that's what Paul is getting at in verse 26 when he says that the events surrounding Jesus' death and resurrection haven't happened in a corner. It's a phrase that means this hasn't happened in secret. If you have not had your your face in the dirt, you've heard about these things. People have been talking about these things for years now. So our rescue is true because I know him. Our rescue is true because others have seen him. And finally, our rescue is true because the Bible points to him. So when Paul tells his story about being rescued by Jesus, he roots his experiences in the biblical story. So look at verses 22 and 23. He says, I'm saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, He would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. I've been rescued by Jesus. And as I read the scriptures, I see him everywhere. He's the suffering servant in Isaiah. He's the son of man in Daniel. My hope, my hope is in this man who was the fulfillment of ancient scriptures. Isn't it crazy? That crazy? Yes, it is, but it's true. It's true. So second, this rescue, it's not only true, but it's, it's powerful. Because when we tell our story, we say things like this. He forgave my sin. Think about this. Paul says, he forgave my sin. Do you remember Paul? Do you remember what he did? This is raging Saul. And God forgave his sin. Just take a moment to to reflect on your life, friends. It's easy to shove it under the rug. But he's forgiven you your sin. He's forgiven you the worst moments that you just wish you could forget about. He's forgiven you your sin. It's done. It's cast into the depths of the sea. It's over. He's forgiven you your sin. 
God appointed Paul as a witness to this powerful rescue, a rescue that brought him out of darkness and into light, out from under the power of Satan and under the reign of God. And this rescue was, it's powerful enough to forgive my sin and yours, my rage, my murder in my heart, my, my covetousness, my slandering people made in his image. He actually forgives it. Second, um, it's powerful because we say things like, he gave me a place. He gave me a place. So look at verse 18. Um, I've been given a place. Paul uses this word that, that means an inheritance. It means that we're made heirs, meaning that you and I get family status, brothers, sisters, you and I have a place where we belong now, which means you, you don't need to submit to the hustle of, of trying to make your mark in the world. You just don't. Just don't. You don't have to earn the love and affection of others. Amen? Friends, you're in God's family. It's powerful because he gave you a place. And lastly, it's powerful. This rescue is powerful because he's changing me. He's changing me. Look at verse 20. So in response to the vision, Paul, in the vein of, of John the Baptist, he, he starts declaring to Jews and Gentiles, repent and, and, and create fruit that shows that you have been rescued by Jesus. Fruit that shows that, that, um, that Jesus has laid claim to all my love and all my allegiance. And this puts everything else in its right place. This is why Paul, this religious minority, mind you, who's on trial before a king who possesses absolutely no power in this moment, can say to a king, can say to a king, man, I really hope you become a Christian someday. It changes everything. It doesn't matter what people think about you anymore. You have been given a place. He's changing you so that you can say to kings, man, Jesus is my king, and I hope you believe in him. <laughs> I'm so glad you're here. So right, right before college, a friend of mine invited me to church. And not only that, they invited me into their family. And I'd never seen a normal family before, people who just enjoyed each other, who loved each other, and who loved Jesus. But observing their lives just attracted me. It made me curious about Jesus. And so I started attending their church. I started playing in their worship band before I was even a Christian. I started listening to sermons. Um, my, my heart was growing soft towards Jesus. And one day, walking home from class, um, I was filled unexpectedly with this joy that felt like it could just burst out of my chest. And it was a taste of that unending love that I'd been looking for. And I, I didn't want that moment to end. I didn't want to leave that, that sidewalk on Daisy Hill because I experienced Jesus. I was filled with his spirit that day. So friends, what's your story? How did he rescue you? Why do you believe in him? How have you experienced him? 
How has he changed you? Remind me, tell me about the sweetness of his forgiveness. What's, what's it like knowing that you belong? You belong. You finally belong. So I was lost. I was rescued. And finally we ask, what do you think? So in these seldom yet precious and earned moments where we get to share our story, there comes a time where we shut up and we stop talking and we ask, what do you think? What do you think about that? (laughs) Because when we share our story, we tell it in a way that kind of elicits a response because our story doesn't simply state what's true about us, but what we, what we believe to be true about the world. We're not sharing what we think is the best way to fry an egg or, or what we think is the best way to get from Grace Chapel to Honest Abe's after church. No, we're sharing our, our take on what, what is true about God and the world and our place in it. And so, friends, in telling our story, um, we should respect. We should um, expect a response. We should expect a response, and people will respond in different ways. So, look at Festus's response in verse twenty-four. He calls Paul crazy. We're not off to a good start. He says, "You've lost your mind," and Paul, man, he still responds with gentleness. That's out of character. That's something that you and I can learn from. Someone calls you crazy and you still have the, the guts to, to respect them and be gentle with them. Woo! The thing is, he's used to rejection at this point, And it's hard, you know, it's hard to ridicule. You have to work hard to ridicule a person's story, but it will happen. It will happen. And when that time comes, um, we're called to gentleness. Because friends, if we're honest, we hope, we hope, our hope is in a Jewish man who lived and rose from the dead in the first century. People have permission to think that that is weird. That's okay. So Paul, at this point, he turns his attention to King Agrippa. So look at verse 27. He says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? Meaning, do you believe that the prophets speak of the Messiah, the suffering servant? I know that you believe. And Agrippa, he kind of skirts the question and he says, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul shows his cards at this point. He says, whether in a short time or a long time, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. So Paul's goal in sharing his story is to persuade. It's to show, it's to show off the truth and power of his Savior that's so evident in the narrative arc of his own personal story. And the nature of Agrippa's response, it's kind of confusing. Is he being cynical? Is he being sarcastic? Is he genuine? Is he trying to create space so that he can weigh what Paul is say, has just said? We don't know what happens to Agrippa. But he's convinced that Paul is innocent. But at this point, no one becomes a Christian after Paul shuts his mouth. No one 
becomes a Christian. And Paul's okay with that. He still believes in the power of his story. He's been faithful to testify about Jesus, and he knows that he's planted this seed. And so finally, he does what everybody else needs to do. He turns to prayer. He turns to prayer, prayer that everyone present would become like him and believe in Jesus. Friend, uh, in closing, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have a story that's meant to be stewarded and shared. It's a gift that's been given to you, a story of wandering and being found, a story of being lost and then rescued. It's a true and powerful story. Who's given you permission tell, to tell your story? And will you try? Will you try this week? For those of you who are here and aren't followers of Jesus, uh, the cat's out of the bag. I want you to believe in him. I want you to believe in him. I'm praying that you would become like me, like many of us in this room, in believing in him, that you'd see his kind hand in all of the frustrations and all of the pressures of life as he attempts to draw you to himself, that you wouldn't double down, that you wouldn't try harder, but you, that you'd give in to his dogged pursuit of you, his, his generosity towards you, his, his, his fullness of mercy that will wash you, dismantle your shame, and give you a place at a table his family. Do you want a story like that? We'll believe in him. Let me pray. Jesus, you are so gracious to us. And uh, Lord, you, I I just pray um, as we reflect on your faithfulness to us and in drawing us to yourself that we would be overwhelmed by your faithfulness to us. And that that would just spur in us um, as we are finally in our, in our right mind, um, as we've been brought out of light into darkness, that it would just spur a joy in us that bubbles over so that we share our joy, our story with those who don't know you. And for those of us who are here, I pray for them like Paul did for those who are present. Would they believe in you? Whether it's now whether it's a short time or a long time, would they believe in you? And would you give them a story of forgiveness and giving them a place, a story of change? Lord, we lift up, uh, yeah, we lift up our lives to you. In Jesus' name, amen.